supervisor when I did my internship at the ICC. And she was not just a supervisor, she was the best supervisor that I could have possibly asked for, not only as a human being, but as a professional. She was one of the brightest people I've ever met. And she really made me get the best out of my internship there. So thanks to Cynthia, I had a great experience at the ICC. But apart from my own personal history, uh, Cynthia, first and foremost, Cynthia is one of those people that were passionate for international law, international criminal law, and human rights law from a very early age, uh, like me and like many other people that uh, drove her to doing, uh, to obtaining a law degree from the University of Costa Rica, where she is from. She got an honors for her degree, and she also, um, was admitted at the Costa Rican bar and was admitted as a public notary in Costa Rica in 2003. In 2005, she obtained her um, diploma of um, studies or of her master's degree. Is, was, that was yeah. a master's, right? Uh, a master's degree from the Universidad Autónoma de Madrid and the Universidad Complutense de Madrid in Spain. And uh, from 2000 to 2003, she worked with the Instituto Latinoamericano de las Naciones Unidas para la Prevención del Delito y el Tratamiento del Delincuente, the, Latin American, the UN Latin American Institute for the Prevention of Crime and Treatment of uh, Perpetrators in Costa Rica. And she worked in the ratification campaign for the entry into force of the Rome Statute. From 2000 to from 2000 to 2002, she represented NGOs, and she presented shadow reports to the uh, Committee for the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. And in 2014, while working as a legal officer at the ICC, she obtained her PhD from the University of Lighting, which is an impressive feat because she never quit her job at the ICC. And since 2006, she's been uh, working as a legal officer in the chambers of the ICC. She worked for Judge Odio Benito. Currently, she works with Judge Carbusia Herrera. And in 2005, she participated in uh, expert roundtables leading to the adoption of what we have here, the OTP's policy on children. So this is Cynthia's impressive <laughs> background. In, Thank you, Danita. <laughs> you forgot I, 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 I made two kids. And <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot that. She also had two kids. Why do so, I have um, yeah, so, a PhD? Um, that was also part of my, uh, of a uh, very important part of my CV. Uh, let me see. Here's to do the, I've never used one of these. Is it to pass here, the? Or, or, or do I use the mouse? <laughs> well, thank you, Dalita, and uh, welcome to to this um, to this uh, conference. But also, I hope that we have enough time for questions and answers uh, uh, about uh, anything. You, my topic will be mostly children and the ICC because that was my PhD research topic and that's what uh, was recently adopted by the Office of the Prosecutor, but feel free to ask me any other questions you might have about the ICC. And so far as I can um, 
answer, uh, either from my background or also some, some things, of course, because I'm involved in chambers I cannot answer, but anything that I can, I will gladly answer. Um, now, just a very brief introduction to the ICC, because I think most of you, if you're here, it's because you're already interested um, about the court. But the Rome Statute was adopted by 120 states, and, and, and these states had only one thing in common, and it's that they wanted a permanent international court. Um, that's basically the only thing that united what was called the like-minded group. And this resulted in, in the Rome Statute that we have today and, and that we have to work as, as practitioners with. And it is a mix, a collage, I used to I like to call it like this technique of art, where a lot of copy-paste went in. And, and if we go to any research, for those of you who are doing research in the travaux preparatoire, uh, some things just don't make sense. They're, they're contradictions that the people that were there, if you ask them today, why did you adopt it? This well, the one group came with this proposal and we changed paragraph two for paragraph three, and, and then it resulted in a mess for some of us sometimes when we have to interpret the law, but that is what we got, and, and that is the law. And if we read Article 21 of the Rome Statute, the Rome Statute is um, almost in, on the top. There's something else that is on the top, I'll let you know later. But, uh, but then this is what we have. Um, currently, we have 124 state parties minus three because there's there's three that are in the process of of, um, of leaving the court. Might not happen. We we, we need to know. Uh, uh, Gambia looks like might not withdraw now that there has been a change in power. Um, South Africa is pending also uh, in a court, so we might have uh, we might stay with 124 state parties. Um, again, most of you know it. There's the big power sometimes missing in, in the picture. United States of America, Israel, China, Russia. Um, some of the, of the mo most notorious powers um, are still missing in the, in, the, in the ICC's Rome Statute. However, um, they did participate in the Rome Statute's conference and all the other conference leading to the Rome Statute. So also, a lot of the limitations that the ICC has today are a product of these states that are not, that some of them didn't even sign it, some signed it, some were actually against it, but they participated in their own conference. So a lot of give and take was, uh, took place in their own conference, and again, a lot of the limitations are not only adopted by these 124 state parties, but most of all by parties that did not want the ICC to, to exist on the first place. So again, this a brief introduction to you know a little bit of the complexity of the Rome Statute. But also because the Rome Statute and the Rome Conference was the first time ever that a multilateral treaty was negotiated also in the presence of thousands, literally, it was more than 2,000 NGOs that were present lobbying in Rome towards the ratification, towards the signature and adoption of the Rome Statute. And again, that's why we have also um, in, in the Rome Statute provisions that are quite pioneering for the time for when it was adopted. 
For example, stating that there has to be equal representation geographically, gender, uh, of the judges, but also of the prosecutor's staff members of the ICC. Um, again, this is what gave also the Rome Statute um, a lot of provisions. If we read through the Rome Statute, the same for the rules, there is a systematic mentioning, perhaps very general. We're going to see it's, it's, it's very general, but it, there is a systematic mentioning of um, gender rights, uh, rights of victims of sexual and gender violence, children, persons with disabilities. Again, sometimes it looks like copy-paste, but it's there. There is a legal basis. And um, I hope to let you know today how we can go deeper into that very general legal basis that the Rome Statute gave us. Now, the jurisdiction of the ICC, very generally, just for those of you that might not know it, but I think most of you know, um, genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and the crime of aggression when it will be, uh, of course, uh, entered into force, um, not yet uh, under the jurisdiction of the ICC. Temporary crimes committed after 1st of July 2002 or after the ratification. Again, Talita uh, is an expert on, on some uh, <laughs> on some temporary extensions of this, uh, for example, when there is a UN Security Council referral, when there's no ratification, but still there could be temporary jurisdiction of the court. Territorial or personal, so this is disjunctive, it's either crimes committed in the territory of the state party or committed by a national of the state party. And then the additional jurisdiction, which are the ones that cause trouble, which is the referral by the UN Security Council or a unilateral declaration of a non-state party. Now, the crimes um, of the court, genocide, again, very general, the, the, it has to have the additional intent of destroying a group. Um, it can be national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. It's a limited, it's a numerous clauses list of groups. Other groups can be persecuted. That's a crime against humanity. But genocide, we have this closed list of groups. Um, crimes against humanity, again, is, is crimes committed in the context of a systematic or generalized or widespread uh, attack against civilian population. Again, if, if one reads their own statute, and again, because there were state parties that wanted to make higher the threshold of what is a crime against humanity, we have that finally, if one reads their own statute, um, it asks for widespread and systematic, because it asks us that it has to be pursuant to an organizational policy, which then makes it systematic. Um, but it's not set on stone. It's actually something that there's dissenting opinions at the ICC's uh, judges this. So it's not necessarily written in stone. There is a lower threshold of crimes against humanity. War crimes than crimes committed um, in the context of an armed conflict. But again, the states that negotiated their own statute made it higher in the level. It's not any war crime that is under the jurisdiction of the court, but it has to be committed 
uh, as part of a plan or policy or as part of a large-scale commission of acts. So again, these are the type of things that, that happened in the negotiation of the Rome Statute that made it a higher threshold to actually prosecute crimes um, at the International Criminal Court. And aggression, um, basically chapters seven of the, Rome, of the Charter of the United Nations, planning, preparation, initiation, or execution uh, by a person in a position effectively to exercise control over to direct the political or military action of a state of an act of aggression. And again, very important, it's aggression committed by, or liable to an individual and not to a state. Um, so in my opinion, a quite complicated crime to prove. It's already difficult for the prosecution to prove uh, crimes against humanity. Uh, I can imagine what it could be to bring a trial for crime of aggression once it has jurisdiction in the court. Now, within those crimes, within those uh, general categories of crimes, there are crimes that are child-specific crimes. That means that children are a material element of the crime. Uh, so we need the existence of children for the crime to exist. The commission of the crime is not possible without them. But there's other crimes which target children or with particularly serious effects on children. One could say any crime under the jurisdiction of the court will affect children. But there are some that have particularly devastating or particularly affect children. Which crimes can we think in this category? So in, in genocide, we have rape and sexual violence, imposing measures intended to prevent births, also because children will usually be in, in that reproductive age or just about to start the reproductive age. So um, measures intended to prevent births could affect children disproportionately. And the forced transfer of children now, the forced transfer of children most likely will affect children of a younger age because we need to think that it's the intent to destroy a group. And the transfer of children, the intention is to destroy that national identity or that religious identity of the children so that they don't even know that they were part of the group. Again, in general, for all the crimes of the Rome Statute, the fact that they're committed against children lowers, in a sense, the threshold of what is needed to destroy a group, what is needed, for example, in the case of torture. Torture, in its essence, is the destruction of, of physical integrity, of mental integrity. It is much easier. It, it, it's much less is required to destroy, for example, the national identity of a group when we have children because of that development because of that process of maturity that is going on. If we think how our life changed between when we were four and we were 12, it's completely different. But if I think how much my life has changed in the last 10 years, I'm basically the same individual. So the same happens for crimes committed against children. The effect is much stronger. So the threshold of a crime committed against children really becoming torture. Uh, not any physical uh, aggression is torture, but if committed against a child, it can be 
more easily torture. Crimes against humanity, then we have again sexual violence, sexual slavery, forced prostitution, forced pregnancy, forced sterilization. Um, I also didn't include it, but persecution, of course. Children as a group, there's, it's missing in my list, but um, persecution of children as a group by their age um, could be also uh, crimes uh, where children are most disproportionately affected. War crimes, the quintessential example enlistment conscription and use of children to participate in hostilities, but also the destruction of schools and hospitals that affect children, of course, especially uh, schools. Attacks to humanitarian missions, because we know, for example, it is in the statistics that most, for example, IDP camps or refugee camps are populated by women and their children, young children. Um, and again, sexual violence as war crimes. Now, how do, the IC, how do children come to the ICC? Because even though my, we might not see it, they interact with the ICC every single day. They come, of course, as witnesses in the Lubanga, the Katanga trials, uh, which were uh, the, the two first cases at the ICC were, were basically child recruitment cases. Witnesses were children. Victims with participatory status were children. They also can benefit a reparation, but again, we're going to touch upon it um, this afternoon. Many of the, or all of the victims of the Katanga and Lubanga case, they're still waiting for reparations. So they were children in 2002, 2003. Today, they're young adults. Um, so beneficiaries for reparations. Indirectly, and most of the children that interact with the court do it in this manner, and it's indirectly as dependents of adult victims and witnesses appearing before the ICC. Um, and that is something important that the policy of the OTP finally <laughs> admitted that. It doesn't say that most of them, but it admits that they exist. Because most of the children that will interact with the court and that will be affected in their life by the work of the court, they do so because they're the child of a victim or a witness participating at the ICC. Within these groups, of course, then there's subgroups of children that the court has to protect. Um, and it's girls, children with disabilities, and traumatized children. In general, most children that the court will interact with will have some kind of trauma, uh, either because they live through a armed conflict, because they've had to relocate with their parents outside their home country. So they will need also protective and special measures. Now, how do child victims have participated in the court? Um, in the first case, in Lubanga case, children were able to participate in the proceedings, so they were able to show their views and concerns to the chamber. Now, in, in, in the first victim's participation decision, um, there were several of these victims that they were asking to participate without parental consent. And the pretrial chamber had actually denied them the right to participate because they didn't lack, they, they lacked parental or guardian consent. 
when their applications came back to the trial chamber, the trial chamber admitted them to participate because they were all basically teenagers by the time. Um, as I told you, now they're adults, but at the time they were teenagers. Some of them close to reaching the age of 18, but most of them above the age of 15. And all of them had no parental relationships. Because of the nature of the crime of child recruitment, all of them had lost contact with their family members. Um, and they had maybe an adult person that they trusted, but they didn't have also a formal guardianship. Some of them had a de facto guardianship, but not a formal one. So the court admitted them to, to participate in the proceedings. And, and I was involved in that, and I thought it was very good. And we mentioned Article 12 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Uh, but then, if you read the Lubanga judgment, the chamber accepted that some of these adults that the children trusted were actually some of them, uh, maybe it doesn't use that word, the judgment, but they were inescrupulous adults who had taken advantage of these children to make it to the ICC and get some kind of advantage from the ICC proceedings. And it was the, the very famous intermediaries of the Lubanga case, um, which are publicly criticized in the, in the judgment of the trial chamber. So again, Yes, they have the right to participate, children, but there has to be some kind of backup to what do we do with children that lack legal guardianship, that lack legal parental consent, but they still need some kind of protection. And this applies also to adult victims because anyone can be subject of, of people that want to take advantage of them. But particularly when we're talking about children, when we're talking about children that have, that basically have no family circle, they've lost any social bonding that they used to have before the conflict. And again, this has now, if, if one reads the OTP policy, there is some consciousness now of what happened in the Lubanga case and the lessons learned of the Lubanga case. And one of the possibilities is to have them, first of all, much better monitoring of who are these intermediaries, um, that there is a direct contact with the victim so that he or she fully understands what it is to actually participate at the court. Um, we often hear witnesses that come to the court and when defense counsel are cross-examining the, the, the witness, they asked, so did you meet the investigators this time? No, I met with this person. Yeah, this person was the investigator. No, this person was from the victim's office. They don't know. It's basically a white face most of the time, um, who for them represents the International Criminal Court. They don't know if it's a psychologist. They don't know if it's a lawyer. They don't know if it had to be recorded or not. That's not a matter for victims to decide, and much less if they're children. So it is for the ICC to have these sort of guidelines for the investigators, for the people interacting with the children to actually then set the rules. And this is something that has been learned from the Lubanga case. And now there is much more monitoring of who interacts with these, with these child victims. Now what, um, 
what measures of protection are offered for children. Um, there is, there, it is important to provide both measures in court. For example, victims most of the times will remain anonymous to the defense. Victims, not witnesses, but victims who are participating will most of the time remain anonymous. But sometimes also victims want to come actually to court. So they have to know that when they come to court, their status of anonymity might be withdrawn. Again, they have to be well informed of, of how when you become evidence, you become disclosable. And everything in your life will become disclosable, even when it doesn't seem relevant because everything is relevant for credibility purposes in cross-examination exercises. So again, victims and witnesses, particularly children, have to be well informed about this. Now, how do we then come to international children's rights and apply them at the ICC? And, and because this is the panorama we have, we have children interacting at the court, we have the Rome Statute, which as I told you, has a good core protection for victims. It talks about victims, it talks about the diversity among victims. It's very general. And there, there are ambiguities, there are lacuna for those of you that study or research in the Rome Statute, like that's the, the, the everyday meal for us. We, we have a Rome Statute that is quite general, quite ambiguous on purpose. It's not an accident. That is, uh, many of the things that the court has ambiguous. Oh, it's very ambiguous, the power of the presiding judge. Well, it's on purpose. A lot of things were made on purpose because it was led to the discretion of the judges to decide. But some of them were left ambiguous because the state parties that were negotiating the Rome Statute just didn't agree on something and they left it ambiguous on purpose. And that's why when we apply the Rome Statute, we have to then go to more specific treaties that have been perhaps agreed upon with much more consensus than the Rome Statute and will give us much more guidance than what the Rome Statute give us. And, and again, it's, I think it's, it's applicable for, for any area of the Rome Statute that you're researching on or um, now, when we talk about the Rome Statute and we're going to define the crimes, we have to go to other international treaties that have defined these, gen these crimes in a much more comprehensive way than the Rome Statute or are the basis of the crimes um, under the jurisdiction of the Rome Statute. And very important is also any other interpretation that other tribunals or other international organizations or committees have given to those treaties are applicable at the ICC. As guidance, perhaps not as applicable law, but they can be used as guidance insofar as they're not contrary to the Rome Statute itself. So again, the Rome Statute, but also the Appeals Chamber in the last years, have given us enough leeway to use this as guidance for applying and interpreting their own statute. But most important, I think that the conventions that protect certain groups are the ones that can give us 
more for the procedural interpretation of their own statute. How do we interpret protective rights, uh, protective measures or special measures for children or for women? How do we respect the principle of non-discrimination as regards children at the ICC? And again, it is these conventions that give us the applicable law. And in the case of children, of course, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, but the CEDAW Convention for Women's Rights, um, Migrant Workers and Their Families, and the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, these are all quite highly ratified international treaties. And in the case of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, a quasi-universal uh, treaty, except for the United States of America, all other <coughs> states have ratified because Somalia and South Sudan were the other two, but they've actually ratified it by now. So it's only one country. And again, the legal basis is pretty strong. And that's why I was telling you before that the Rome Statute comes first, but actually not. Because if one reads Article 21, three of the Rome Statute, what comes first is internationally recognized human rights. Doesn't mean internationally ratified human rights treaties, that's different. But internationally recognized human rights, so international customary law regarding international human rights <laughs> law, that has a quasi-constitutional application above the Rome Statute. And Article 21.3, which then becomes kind of the chapeau of Article 21, says that the application and interpretation of law pursuant to this article must be consistent with internationally recognized human rights. Again, it's a pretty strong statement, and I think that that was, uh, yeah, it, it kind of passed through the negotiations in the Rome, in the Rome Conference. Um, and again, if one reads carefully the, the OTP's policy, it's funny because they don't recognize that. Um, when they refer to the Conventions on the Rights of the Child, they refer to it as applicable under Article 21.2 as an international treaty. Only in case of lacuna. Yeah. So, so they put it in a lower level. And, and why? Because they said that when they apply the best interest of the child, for example, they can still go against it if it's in the interest of other competing rights or of other competing interests of the Office of the Prosecutor. So purposely, they put it on the Article 21 too. But uh, in my opinion, the convention in itself, yes, 21 too. But a core principle, like the principle of the best interest of the child, and the fact that the Convention on the Rights of the Child says that it has to be the primary principle of interpretation and of application of the law as regards children, uh, that is Article 21.3, pure. Like, I couldn't think of anything more internationally recognized human rights that, than that principle. However, the Office of the Persecutor didn't give it that high uh, standard. But the chambers could. And that's just where, where the chambers could give it um, a higher uh, status. Again, this is important because if one reads the Rome Statute, there's of course no provision that is discriminatory in itself. 
Um, we have a, a formally a very equal, non-discriminatory, pioneering treaty. But it's very general. All over the place we see uh, paragraphs that finish with victims of sexual and or gender violence, children and persons with disabilities. Okay, what do we do with those very general? Um, we have to go then to the Convention on the Rights of the Child to tell us how exactly we're going to interpret and apply that law. For example, Rule 89 of the Rules of Procedure and Evidence tells us the steps for victims to apply to participate in proceedings. How we actually get children to apply, but how we actually protect children that do apply, like in the Lubanga case, then we need to go to the Convention on the Rights of the Child, for example, but also to the guidelines um, adopted by the, by the UN or by the European Commission on how to have access for children in the criminal justice system. Okay, so the main principles of the Convention on the Rights of the Child are then applicable at the ICC, and again, I reiterate that they are above the Rome Statute. They have to be guiding the Rome Statute. And it's the principle of non-discrimination, which is already in Article 21.3 of the Rome Statute, the best interest of the child, the right to life, and the right of children to present their views in matters that affect them, according to their maturity and their age, of course. So how do we apply these, and how have they been applied at the ICC? Um, the Rome Statute does not state in any moment where, who is a child. It only says that it doesn't have jurisdiction for crimes committed um, by persons under the age of 18 at the time of the commission. Uh, but we, we don't have a definition of who is a child. So the definition, of course, of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, but most importantly of the Committee uh, of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. The Committee on the Rights of the Child have interpreted what exactly means that someone is a child, and also that in case of doubt, one will protect the most the child. So in case of doubt, one will treat that person as a child insofar as it gives protection. Also, um, not the chambers, but the Victims and Witnesses Unit that deals with children, they do treat persons that were children at the time of the commission of the crime they are treated as children when they come to testify or when they come in to interact with the court, um, even if they're adults by the time they give testimony. Why? Because mentally, when a person comes to testify to the court for crimes that were committed when they were children, they will, in a sense, become as that child. They're testifying about something that happened to them as a child. So they are treated uh, as a child victim even though they're adults by the time they come to the court. Again, the Convention on the Rights of the Child has been used to grant participation status to victims that are children without legal or parental consent. But again, now, today, at present, because of the bad experience in the Lubanga trial, this has been done now with more care. Basically, yes, they can have legal standing, but the court can appoint someone 
that can ask can can act as an adlitum guardian or as an adlitum um, agent of the child that will protect the rights of the child vis-a-vis -vis the court as a child, not 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 a lawyer, but as a child. Um, also, a child might have legal standing at the court, but if it's a, a child that can be a self-incriminatory uh, witness or victim, for example, in the case of former child soldiers, they could have committed crimes in their own national jurisdiction, they need to be protected by the court. So there, yes, they are assigned to a council, they are assigned to a duty council, and they have to be duly informed of the consequences of uh, with this, of testifying at the court. Then also how to deal with a child witness who has post-traumatic stress disorder. In the Lubanga case, we, we received uh, expert testimony of how the testimony of children that have suffered post-traumatic stress disorder is basically a messy testimony. It, it's, and, and the expert said that the mind or the, the brain of a child is plastic, like Play-Doh. It, it's still information. And these traumatic events then will cause um, the, the mind to be foggy, the mind to have problems. Already we have problems, even if we don't suffer for trauma, of thinking about something that happened five years ago. Imagine if you're a child developing at the pace that children, six months in a child's life, it's like a new world. So imagine if it's five years in a child's life, who on top of it has been displaced, has seen horrible, traumatic uh, experiences in his or her life. So how to deal with these child witnesses? In the Lubanga case, regretfully, the judges deemed that it was not possible to rely on these witnesses' testimonies for the purposes of a conviction. And, and actually, these witnesses, the, the child witnesses of the Lubanga case, none of them were used to convict Mr. Lubanga. Again, then, it's also a matter of prosecutorial strategy. Do we really need child witnesses at the court, uh, knowing that they will be confronted by cross-examination? Um, and that is something that the prosecutor has also learned. Uh, if one looks at the Ongwen trial, which is another child recruitment case that is recently started at the court, the, the, the prosecutor used the unique investigative opportunity, which is Article 54 of the Rome Statute, that allows the prosecutor to actually capture, snapshot um, the testimony at a previous moment so that it becomes intact and it comes to the court, it comes to the judges intact without the passing of time. Um, another possibility, because there has been um, a modification to Rule 68 where written statements are more easily admitted now at the court than they were 10, 11 years ago. Um, so again, if one wants to bring a child witness, do it under Rule 68, do it under unique investigative opportunity. Um, now, how to then investigate um, crimes, for example, of violence committed against girls, or how to identify the gendered uh, dimension in crimes committed against children in general. If we're going to go to those double-faced, we're not talking only about children, but we're going to discuss children, girls. 
then we don't only look to the Convention on the Rights of the Child, we go to the CEDAW Convention. And here it's important then these uh, different internationally recognized human rights that have to interact at the ICC. Um, when we're talking, for example, of girls within the, the concept of children. Again, um, I was telling you that the, the Lubanga case, he did get convicted for crimes uh, of recruitment. But none of the core witnesses of the case were relied upon by the chamber. And if one reads closely the Lubanga judgment, and which was confirmed in appeals, the basis was, among others, a video. A video where children were seen. There were several videos, but there was one video of the Rampara camp where children were seen with uniforms, with weapons, they were talked, um, Mr. Lubanga was addressing them. Um, I'm sure it will be used in the Nataranda case because Mr. Nataranda is actually there also in the video. So again, if there's other means to bringing a witness to the court, uh, I would say that it is never in the best interest of the child to have that child face cross-examination. The child might present evidence to the court through a written statement. It might be part of a process of an expertise that could do a, a, um, a mapping of an area where, for example, child recruitment occurred um, to see how there's different patterns arising out of the child recruitment, which could actually also be beneficial for reparations in the future, to see how a certain village or a certain region of a country was affected by child recruitment. And this can be proven by expertise, sociological, anthropological expertise, rather than having one child witness, six child witnesses come to a courtroom in The Hague. So again, seeing how to be more creative in how to investigate and prosecute these crimes. So again, just to, to wrap up my idea of, of when we have any situation at the ICC involving children, um, let's say it is a former child soldier of the Lubanga case who lost her right to go to school when she was recruited, uh, but now she has interaction with the court. She's 15, she wants to go back to school, but she has a child. Uh, this girl has disability, has, she has mental disability. Um, she was raped, so she also has um, perhaps physical um, disabilities or sufferings because of her rapes. Um, she has already certain maturity, um, not only because of age, but also because of her own experience, because she has lived on her own since she was 10, that she was recruited, she's now a mother. Um, so again, her rights have to be taken into consideration according to her uh, maturity and to her age. She suffered from sexual violence. And again, best interest of the child. It's not the child that we as third person adults, we can decide what her best interests are. We have to also take into consideration her views. What are her best interests? But also the interests of her child, because she is now a mother, is a child, mother of a child. So, so then we have this very complex concept of children at the end. And, and this was a witness in the room, in the, in the, in the Lubanga case, exactly the same. 
and, and she's actually now a witness also in the Natalanda case. So, so we have that complexity of a child coming to the court. She's now an adult by, the, by now. Um, she was 15 when she testified in Lubanga, so now she must be an adult. But again, this is the, the person that comes to the court. And then when we are interpreting any rule of the rules of procedure and evidence, saying how she has to apply to participate in proceedings or how she will be granted reparations, we have to go to other international treaties of human rights law that can give us the answer, be it the CEDAW Convention, the International Convenant of Economic and Cultural Rights, or the International uh, Convention on Persons with Disabilities. Again, we have to go to this big, bigger universe and not just focus ourselves in the Rome Statute. The Rome Statute is but part of a galaxy of, of international treaties. And again, that these ones, some of the principles here in these conventions are higher than the Rome Statute and actually should guide how we look at the Rome Statute. Um, again, important then that ICC case law and the appeals chamber has confirmed that internationally recognized human rights law are the chapeau of Article 21.3. So it's not only my idea, it's been something that has been um, systematically um, been stated at the court. But it also, the, the appeals chamber has says that soft law and, and, and other treaty law can guide the application and the interpretation of the Rome Statute. And the Appeals Chamber, but also other chambers of the court, have relied in the UN guidelines, in Inter-American Court of Human Rights jurisprudence, uh, European Court of Human Rights jurisprudence, so many other, uh, the Paris Principles, couldn't be softer than the Paris Principles, um, for children associated with armed conflict, so these can be relied on. Uh, I think I'm a little bit, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, now, what some of the challenges we get uh, at the court when we deal with children, but I would say with any person interacting with the court, um, how to prevent revictimization. Um, I'd say that the most difficult part of it is balancing the rights of the defense to have a fair trial, to have full disclosure. Um, to have the right to challenge witnesses and at the same time prevent revictimization. Um, I'd say this is the biggest challenge we face on a daily basis in any ICC trial. Um, privacy versus open justice, because in, in order to protect these witnesses and victims, who very often witnesses, they're, they're well known to the defense, but because we have to protect their identity vis-a-vis -vis the public, um, many of you, if you go to visit the court, uh, many of our hearings will be privately held because we need to protect the identity vis-a-vis -vis the public. Reparations, um, our biggest challenge in reparations now, I would say, is the timing. Um, I said it at the beginning, Lubanga and Katanga reparations are still pending for crimes committed in 2002, 2003. Um, which is unacceptable, especially in Lubanga, we think it's crimes committed against children who nowadays are young adults. 
In the case of Katanga, we have had victims that have died in the process. Uh, many of them are over 60 now. Uh, in, a, in a country where the, the average age is 37. So again, timing in reparations is of essence, but also avoiding stigmatization. How do we grant reparations to child victims without stigmatizing them or marginalizing them even more from the societies that they actually victimize themselves? Um, so here it's, it's just a, a quote of, uh, of the intermediaries and, and how they interacted at the, in the Lubanga case. And, and this is a quote from the judgment um, of an intermediary that was the one arranging travel and, and transport for witnesses on behalf of the OTP. P581, it was a, a member of the OTP, an investigator that was called to testify in the Lubanga case. Uh, and, and this person says that, that yes, there, there was a risk um, the, on the basis of this witness, and the chamber decided that there was a risk that P143, which was an intermediary, but was also that adult person that the victims actually trusted and looked at him as kind of a father. Um, and he encouraged or assisted witnesses to give false evidence. Um, 316, another intermediary persuaded witnesses to lie as to their involvement as child soldiers within the UPC. 321, encouraged and assisted witnesses to give false evidence. Um, again, this is, I have no doubt having heard those witnesses that they were actually recruited. But the fact that people interfered with the way they gave evidence made it unreliable. And, and then again, it's the importance of capturing the evidence in the moment and by professionals of the Office of the Prosecutor that have knowledge and children um, victims so that this evidence would have come intact to the trial because they were child soldiers. It was just child soldiers whose evidence was tampered with. Now, um, just to finalize, what is the OTP policy on children? It's basically a public commitment, and it's that. It's a promise of the prosecution that it will investigate crimes committed against children or affecting children. So it will also, it, it, it has made the commitment, the prosecutor, that when investigating any crime under the jurisdiction of the court, it will also try to investigate insofar as possible how the crimes affect children. Because it's very important. I, I, um, I think it's, it's, it's essential, if we're going to respect the principle of non-discrimination, that when, we, when, the, when the ICC prosecutors investigate, the investigators investigate, when the trial lawyers prosecute these crimes, any crime, that they go to what happened to the children in this committee, what happened to the women in this committee, it's not going to just focusing on, for example, the because that happened in the Bakbo case, just another small anecdote. When, when there was the authorization to start the investigation in Cote d'Ivoire, the chamber asked the registrar to make a, a difference by gender and by age and by ethnic group of who was presenting information under Article 15. And it was both basically men in their mid-30s, 40s, and all from one ethnic group, most of them. 
um, the ethnic group that had been mostly into power. So again, how we need to, the, the OTP has said they're going to investigate crimes also considering um, the fundamentals of non-discrimination. So again, not the adult population, but really going into what's happening to the children. And among the children, then of course, girls, which most of the times are discriminated within the group of children. And important is that they've accepted at least, it's a start, that they will have a two-step approach to identify the best interest of the child. And that's why I say it's a start. Because again, that's why they placed it under Article 21, two treaties and not internationally recognized human rights. Because they say they will assess the best interest of the child, but they might still consider other factors that might go against the best interest. But at least they've, they've made a, an, a commitment that they will assess the particular circumstances of the child, the child's views, any views of the parents, guardians, or adults' views that could be contrary to the child's view, of course, and the child's rights. And then they will assess other factors, like legal issues, the obligation to disclose to the defense, which is of essence at the court, and operational issues, for example, unique evidence. And there they say it. Basically, only if it's the only evidence available, which it will be rare at an ICC case. We're not talking about a murder case where the child was the only one that testifies about the person's identity. Not an ICC case. So, and usually a child will not be that top insider you need for a crimes against humanity case. So, most of the times I'd say those operational issues will not arise. So, any questions? I, I think I'll stop here because otherwise I, Oh, I don't know how to stop it. Yeah. <laughs> Any questions you might have? Or? First of all, thank you very much. <laughs>